This podcast is underwritten in part by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible with General Editor D.A. Carson, the only study Bible built on biblical theology, inviting you to marvel at the big story as you savor each detail. The website is whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my two usual hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, speaking to us somewhere from Maryland. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. I'm always being mocked for my pronunciation of that. Maryland. Uh, and Todd Pruitt from his megachurch in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And today we want to address uh, pressing topic through an extremely interesting book that's just been published. One of the questions that I've come across maybe in the last five or ten years in various contexts has been that of, does classical theism preach? Does the doctrine of God that was held pretty much by all Christians everywhere prior to about 1800, does it preach? Is it still a viable option for those who seek to expound the Word of God week by week to doctrines such as simplicity, immutability, and passability? Uh, can they still speak, or are they to be consigned to the rubbish heap of theological expositional history? And there have been various uh, approaches taken to this topic over recent years, and one of the most interesting is in a new book. Uh, from Baker Bookhouse, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis by Dr. Craig A. Carter. Dr. Carter is a professor of theology at Tyndale University College and Seminary in Canada and author of Rethinking Christ and Culture. And it's our very great pleasure to have Dr. Carter with us on the podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Carter. Great to be here. I want to start by just asking what is a necessary introductory question, but will perhaps be enlightening for our listeners. Why did you write this book? This book comes out of a theological journey that I've been on for the last 15 years. During my doctoral studies, I had uh, embraced, um, to a very great extent, the, the, the pacifist theology of John Howard Yoder. I studied under John Webster, and he was, of course, at that time, very Bartian, became less Bartian toward the end of his life. So my major theologian was Bart, did my thesis on Yoder, um, wrote a book called Rethinking Christ and Culture, uh, arguing for a Yoderian kind of social ethic based on emphasizing God as love. Well, at that point, I decided to move out of administration and went on sabbatical and started teaching full time. And I proposed writing a book to InterVarsity on the doctrine of God and my intention was to make use of the critique of classical theism by people like John Zizioulis and Colin Gunton, and to, to develop a concept of God that would undergird 
a pacifist social ethic. So that's where I started. And I, I began to read the fourth century sources. And I began to realize that um, Zizioulis was out to lunch. I had no idea. I mean, um, I, was, I was an innocent babe in the woods. And I read Lewis Ayer's Nicaea and its Legacy. And that was a life-changing book for me. Then I actually started reading Athanasius and the Cappadocians and Augustine. And um, I came to realize there is no big distinction between East and West, that, uh, that there is pro-Nicene theology that takes different forms throughout the fourth century. Long story short, um, after that, I began to read uh, Thomas Aquinas. And there, an absolutely life-changing book for me was um, Matthew Levering's Scripture and Metaphysics um, on Aquinas. And what I began to realize is that there's a long tradition that's both Eastern and Western that begins with the Bible itself, comes all the way forward to Aquinas, which sees God as a trinity and, and works with concepts like analogy and mystery and so on. And I, and I began to see that the God of classical theism is um, actually the God of the Bible. Well, uh, my whole project was out the window, of course, but I still had a contract. So I began to write the book, and um, I began to see that the Nicene Fathers used allegorical exegesis. We'll just call it that for now. It's more complicated if you read the book. But they used the kind of exegesis that focused on the spiritual sense, and they derived Nicene Orthodoxy from that. Now, I was convinced of Nicene Orthodoxy, but in writing my Doctrine of God, the, the hermeneutical question began to just become so broad and so complex that I that it was uh, it was taking over. So I decided to make it a separate book, and so in a sense, the the book on hermeneutics had to be written before the other book, in order to clear the way so I could get on with the actual issue of understanding God from my now classical theist perspective. I've abandoned pacifism. I now see the whole idea of making the doctrine the attribute of God of love to try to derive the entire doctrine of God from that just doesn't work from a biblical perspective. And so, we need to understand God's love in such a way that is compatible with God's wrath. We need to understand God's love in such a way that it is not exclusive of justice and judgment and, and so on. So, uh, I guess I've become more biblical and more historically aware over the last uh, 10 years, and that's, that's how this book came to be written. I think that in order to defend Nicaea, you have to argue that, I mean, you can't just say, well, the fathers used totally wrong methods of exegesis, but somehow came up with the right doctrine. Uh, you, you've got to somehow understand why that doctrine, why that method of exegesis resulted in the orthodoxy that we have today. And um, so that, that led me into the critique of modernity. And I think it's very fascinating. I'll just make one more point. Sorry, long answer to a short question. The issue of Nicene orthodoxy is that here you have a tradition grounded in exegesis that has persisted for 1,500 years, and it has resulted in a stable Trinitarian and Christological set of doctrines that undergird the faith that have been embraced by all kinds of different traditions, Eastern, Western, First World, Third World, uh, Pentecostal, Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist. And on the other hand, you have what you get when you go to SBL. You, you get um, all these different 
groups meeting in different rooms, using different methodologies, coming to different conclusions with no, nobody knows what the Bible is about as a whole. Nobody agrees on exegetical matters. So isn't it ironic that the supposedly subjective method of allegory that allows you to read anything you want into the text results in a stable, unified tradition that is coherent and enduring. And on the other hand, the scientific objective method that allows you to rescues you from the hopeless subjectivity of allegorizing results in a completely fragmented set of traditions that, that don't interact with each other, that, that don't cohere in any meaningful way and can't tell you what the Bible means as a whole. So, Obviously, there's something very wrong here, and and I think part of the part of my goal in the book is just to say, well, look, you know, the emperor has no clothes. I I had not thought about it in those terms until I read the book. In fact, I got the book because I saw Scott Swain of RTS um, Orlando tweeting out all these rave comments about it, and I thought, well, you know, if Scott Swain says this is the book to read, I'll get it, and somebody's going to have to work very hard for me to find a better book for the year uh, than this one. It's, it's an excellent book. It, I, the way I describe it is it's a page turner, and you've given us something that, that's a real treat uh, to read. Now, now, you've mentioned just kind of in passing Aquinas, and until I read guys like Thomas Oden back when I was in seminary, you know, Aquinas just seemed like a rather uh, dismissible uh, figure trapped in, in Roman Catholicism and, and that kind of thing. What do Protestants typically get wrong about Aquinas? And then, you know, kind of from there, what, what did Aquinas do with Plato uh, that is oftentimes misunderstood? Well, I think the biggest thing we get wrong about Aquinas is that we do not distinguish between Aquinas's doctrine of God which is spelled out in the first 43 questions of part one of the Summa, versus things that come later in the Summa Theologica, which are more suspect from a Protestant perspective. We can't evaluate Aquinas with a broad brush. The way I explain it to my students is, I say, look, if you start reading the Summa Theologica with page one and you read the whole thing, the further into it you go, the more suspect Aquinas' theology will become. At the very beginning, he is absolutely one with Augustine and Calvin, and you don't have to question anything in really in the first section. When he gets into Christ and the sacraments and into the church and the way that grace is mediated and so on, then it becomes very much what the reformers were reacting against in many ways, although not as bad as, as later medieval scholasticism. And um, Richard Muller makes a good point when he argues that when Calvin argues against the scholastics, he has in mind the nominalist later scholastics of the University of Paris, not so much Aquinas, who was not a major figure uh, in the 16th century in terms of being famous. And, you know, in the 16th century, they didn't say Aquinas sums up what the Middle Ages meant the way that people did in the 19th century. So I think that the, making the distinction between Aquinas's firm grasp of scripture and God and the Trinity and Christology versus other doctrines having to do with uh, salvation and the sacraments and the church and the priesthood, that's the biggest thing that Protestants get wrong. I try to tell my students, you know, there wasn't any Roman Catholicism in the 13th century exactly. It was emerging, and the problems that the Reformers reacted against were becoming prominent at that time. And when you actually read Aquinas, you notice this. I mean, the order in which I read this was important because I had just finished reading the Cappadocians, and then I read Aquinas. And 
when I read, for example, his treatment of simplicity, it was clear to me that the Cappadocians were saying something almost the same in terms of simplicity and the doctrine of analogy. But Aquinas says it more clearly, more logically, he sums it up better. But the thing that really stood out to me was that Aquinas is summarizing the tradition. He's not an innovator. He's portrayed in the textbooks often as the guy who corrupted Christian theology by subjecting it to Aristotelian thought, which is just not a fair assessment of what he's doing at all. But he's actually much more, especially in the first part on the doctrine of God, one who sums up responsibly and clarifies and restates the tradition. And that's the thing that I that I think we really need to focus on with the clients. And, and you mention and, and give a defense for what you call uh, Christian Platonism. Now, I've, I had heard for years, not just Aquinas, but even Augustine being dismissed by a lot of kind of conservative, contemporary, even reformed theologians as being too committed to or too formed by an uncritical acceptance going back to Aristotelian philosophy. How do you respond to that criticism? You know, was, was Augustine really too formed uh, by an uncritical assessment of Plato? How do you respond to that? Well, I've been teaching a course on Augustine for the last, uh, every other year for the last eight years or so. And, uh, we read the Confessions and we read the City of God. That's what the Course is. When you read Augustine, you realize that this is not so. The, the other thing that is really important is when I use the phrase Christian Platonism, the word Christian there does not mean that you take some kind of Platonism as you find it in Plotinus and then just baptize it and say that's what and, and then reread the Bible in the light of that. No, the modifier Christian is to be taken seriously. You might say it's a Christianized Platonism. It's a Platonism that is changed in certain significant ways by Augustine in order to make it compatible with Scripture. But people say, well, why, why would you even want to reclaim the term Platonism? Well, it's because, you know, the way that people say uh, something today is scholarly. They're talking about why a certain commentary is not good, and they'll say it's not scholarly or it's not academic or it's not scientific. The way we use the term scholarly or scientific today is very vague in general. It could mean many things, but it usually means at a minimum something like thoughtful, informed, logical, reasoned, as opposed to off the cuff and individualistic and subjective and governed by feelings and that sort of thing. Well, Platonism was sort of the science word of the ancient world. Platonism meant people who do serious philosophy, people who, who are rigorous thinkers, people who, who don't just off the cuff throw out ideas or buy in willy-nilly into crazy myths, but people who actually think seriously about philosophy. Platonism is as opposed to Epicureanism, as opposed to materialism. The only other real serious rival to Platonism as an intellectual tradition in Augustine's day was Stoicism. And other than that, the rest of them were basically Democritus and, and those guys were, Lucretius, they, they were basically the Richard Dawkins of their day. Comic figures are not really to be taken seriously. And to be platonic, on the other hand, was to be someone who was actually dealing with, with serious scientific stuff. And so you would no more want your theology dismissed as unscientific. Well, you would, in Augustine's day, no more want your, your theology dismissed as non-Platonic. It functioned in that, in that same type of way. And, and of course, Platonism means so many different things. 
Well, one of the reasons that I want to reclaim the term Platonism for Christianity is because the Bible cannot be understood except in a Platonic sense, meaning the Bible assumes that this material cosmos we inhabit that is accessible to our five senses is not all the reality that exists. The Bible assumes that there is a second reality, a spiritual realm. It's wherever the risen body of Jesus went. The Acts says it, it went into heaven. What's that? Hebrews talks about the, the heavenly sanctuary as opposed to the earthly sanctuary. And Christ entered into the heavenly sanctuary and did things and so on. The Jewish tradition understands the Bible and the Holy of Holies as a replica of something that's eternal in the heavens. Well, this other realm is exactly what has been rejected by modern thought ever since Spinoza. Um, the, the idea that the, the materialism, by the way, that was rejected by Augustine when he said, I'm a Platonist as opposed to a Epicurean or a, a, an atomist, he was rejecting the kind of Platonism which has now triumphed in Western civilization. And so, what we need to understand is that the Bible fits with a two-tier understanding of reality, but it cannot be forced into a monolithic, naturalistic philosophy in which there is no spiritual realm, there is no heaven, there is no realm of angels and spirits and, and so on. So, I think that Platonism, you know, we might as well fight over Platonism as fight over naturalism or materialism, it's, but, it, but there, it's all of a piece. And, and so, the, the ideal philosophy then is a Christianized Platonism, a Platonism that understands that there is a realm and a material realm, and that there's two-way traffic between these things, there are angelic visitations in this world, there are prayers that go up to that world. It says the two are inter, interrelated somehow. And I believe that any realist metaphysics has to take seriously some concept of universals. Now, I have my views on that. And by the way, I think the contemporary philosopher to read on this is Edward Fazer. His new book, Proofs for the Existence of God, is excellent. Reputation of the New Atheism is excellent. His book on Aquinas is excellent. But in his book on proofs for the existence of God, he, he goes through various kinds of realism that there are, and he argues for the Augustinian kind, which is what I would argue for as well. But there's got to be some way of connecting the two realms. There's got to be some way in which the spiritual realm determines or is influential on the nature of the reality we inhabit. And so, therefore, I don't think we can ever do without some kind of Christianized Platonism. Dr. Carter, um, you know, we're talking here about this case of Christian Platonist metaphysics, but um, how does that help the layperson in reading scripture, or does it help the layperson in reading scripture? Can only scholars really correctly interpret the Bible? And I love in your book, and the reason why I'm asking you this question is, I just saw it as such a helpful understanding for the layperson in interpreting scripture, um, you know, what scripture says to the churches and how you really start with how we perceive the Bible in the first place. How is reading scripture different from reading other books? How scripture and creed function together? Scripture, looking at scripture as sacrament. How do these different teachings in your book help the layperson to read scripture? Well, I guess one of the most controversial uh, and iconoclastic aspects of the book is that I actually believe that lay people interpret the Bible better than scholars. <laughs> um, the, I really liked that part. <laughs> Obviously, there are scholars who do it well, too, right. and there are lay people who get it wrong. But, but I really think that the lay person who reads, who, 
to the extent that a layperson can pick up my book and understand it, they will find that what I'm arguing for is what they have always believed. In fact, I've had several emails from people, pastors actually, who have said, um, I always believe this, but I could never have articulated it. And so there's a, there's a sense in which what's going on in the church when people understand the Bible, I'm trying to say that's normative. And what scholars do has got to pay attention to that. And it, whenever scholars develop a theory that makes the kind of preaching of the Bible that makes sense of the Bible as a whole in the church, whenever that makes that problematic, then scholarship needs to um, take a second look at what it's doing. And that's what I'm suggesting needs to happen. So I think, I think lay people can read and understand the Bible. We have a class on Thursday night of men. I have about 25 men, and we did a, we did a year-long course on hermeneutics. So we used a standard evangelical hermeneutics textbook that I argued with at times. We used several things, inductive Bible study methods combined with a whole Bible biblical theology perspective. And anyway, we discussed and studied hermeneutics, and now we're doing a survey of the Old Testament over three years. These people are not highly, well, they range. I've got a medical researcher, a cancer specialist at a hospital here, down to people who have high school only. And many of the people in the class actually are working English as a second language, but they're understanding the Bible and they're interested in the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you that lay people are not interested in the Bible. They really are. There are many of them who are really seriously willing to become engaged with studying it in an in-depth way. But something's preventing that from happening more often than it should. So part of what I'm about is trying to peel back what that is. You know, uh, those of us who've, who've been to seminary, one of the things that we typically learn as a concrete rule of biblical interpretation, and, and this is such a big part of your book, is, you know, there's one meaning. For a text multiple applications but just one meaning and that is drilled into us over and over and over again the problem is you know i just accepted that because that's what my teachers taught me but then when i would read the new testament i would find that jesus and the apostles did not follow that rule and, and you go directly there what do you mean you know when you say hold it when you challenge that rule that most of us seminarians are taught one meaning for the text, you say, no, 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 no. You know, the pattern of Jesus and, and the apostles and then the first four or five centuries of the church is that no, a text can have several meanings. What do we mean by that? Well, when Matthew 2 says that Hosea 11.1 1 applies, so you have a text there where out of Egypt I've called my son. If you say there's a single meaning to the text, and, and by the way, there is a sense in which, I'm going to sound complicated like Aquinas here, or we go too deeply into this, but okay, but bear with me. There is a sense in which there is a single meaning, okay? There is a sense in which the meaning is one, meaning that the meaning doesn't have built-in contradictions. Uh, but the meaning is also, besides there being a single meaning, it's also a deep meaning a meaning that is not always fully appreciated by every person at every moment, okay? Now, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 is a key text for me because there, Peter is saying specifically and directly that the prophets inquired and searched about the meaning of the revelation that they themselves were the conduit of. So the prophets didn't understand who would be the Christ and when the Christ would come, and they searched and inquired. Even the angels didn't understand it. 
And yet the prophets were given prophecies. They were allowed to overhear things, you know, getting into the second half of the book, you know, overhearing conversations between the father and the son about the plan of redemption. And they wrote down what they heard, like John in, in, you know, in Revelation, he's invited to come up and write down what he sees and hears. They wrote these prophecies, but they still didn't fully understand them. So the question then is, why does Matthew apply Hosea to Jesus? If we say that there's a single meaning, and here's where we go wrong. If we say there is the single meaning is the conscious intention of the human author, then we've got a problem. Because the single meaning could be the conscious intention of the divine author. That I can agree with. But you'll notice that the whole concept of divine authorship tends to drop out of modern hermeneutics at that point. When they tell you there's a single meaning, they often don't say it, but they imply that that single meaning is the meaning held by the what the original author meant to say in the original situation to the original audience. But what if the divine author meant more by the revelation he gave the Old Testament prophet than the Old Testament prophet himself understood? Where it can all go off the rails is if you argue that the conscious intention of Hosea is in tension with or different from the intention that Matthew says the divine author had in Hosea. I don't know if you followed that. The divine author, in giving that revelation to Hosea, had a different intention that contradicts the conscious human intention of the prophet Hosea. Well, then you've got a situation where Matthew could read anything into Hosea, right? But if there is a link a harmony, a unity between the conscious intention of the human author and the intention of the divine author, which is deeper and more profound than the human author's intention, but not against it or in contradiction to it. Then there's something more in the text of Hosea for Matthew to bring out for us after the coming of Jesus than even what what Hosea understood. But what I argue in the book is that that the tradition has over time argued that whatever that extra is, whatever that other intention that the divine author has that is not the consciously held intention of the human author, that that cannot be, and this is where Irenaeus is fighting the Gnostics, this is the central issue for him, this other divine intention can't negate or rule out or go against or be contradictory to the human author's intention. Because you got to back up and say, well, wait a minute, if if God, the, the divine author, is giving Hosea a revelation, and God has a deeper, fuller in sense in mind of what this text is going to mean, can't God give Hosea the, the revelation in such a way as to prevent these kinds of contradictions? Well, this is where inspiration comes in. And if, if Hosea is inspired, and if God is omniscient, and so on, then why can't God give Hosea an insight into God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt as a central salvific act in the shaping of the nature of the people of God? And why can't that become the established pattern for the greater salvific act that God is going to perform in Jesus Christ, which Hosea doesn't see because of his place in salvation history, he, it hasn't happened yet. But Matthew, on the other side of the coming of Christ, can look into that and say, you know, That salvific act that Hosea is talking about where God rescues Israel from Egypt, that's been done in a greater way in God delivering his people, the real exodus, 
that is seen in Hosea, but not fully, it's in Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of basis upon which Matthew is able to exegete Hosea in a responsible way. And by the way, there's a whole metaphysics involved in presupposing that all this can happen. I mean, you can't have all this happening in, in, in certain kinds of metaphysical conceptions. And, but, but I do think that that's how we understand it. I think you're pointing there, Dr. Carter, as well to, to something that a lot of pastors wrestle with, maybe a lot of lay Christians wrestle with, and that is, how do you find Christ in the Old Testament? Clearly, Jesus says to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you know, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that has been written about me. Clearly, Christ sees himself pervading the Old Testament. And yet, often for preachers, and for lay people reading, reading scripture, it can be hard to know exactly where to find Christ in the Old Testament. That's where some of the fear, I think, of, of allegorical exegesis, as it's typically called, comes in. Are we inventing ways of finding Jesus in the Old Testament? What would you say to a pastor or a lay person who obviously wants to take Jesus' words seriously, that yes, he's, he's pervasive in the Old Testament, but to do it in a, a biblically responsible way that doesn't mean you're finding Jesus symbolized in every palm leaf or something, in every description of nature in the Old Testament. What are the kind of basic rules for preachers and lay people as they read the Old Testament and want to find Christ there? Well, I, I think that uh, Augustine would say that it would be better to err on the side of finding him in every leaf than to err on the side. <laughs> nice answer. <laughs> on the Psalms, who I read recently, who said there's only five Messianic Psalms. Wow. Um, so if we've got to err on one side, let's err on the side of seeing him everywhere, because that seems to be what he implies in Luke. And by the way, there's two pericopes in Luke, the Emmaus Road and the Upper Room. And in the Emmaus Road, he says, Moses and the prophets. And we know that that's a way of saying the whole Old Testament, because in the, in the next pericope, he, he says, Moses, prophets, and the Psalms, standing as the head of the third section of the writings. So, yeah, you're right. He does, Jesus does mean that he is in all of the Old Testament. He's in the Song of Songs. He's in Job. He's in Genesis. He's in Exodus. He's in Leviticus. There's one woman in our church who who uh, got so excited about Leviticus, she spent a whole year, a layperson, studying Leviticus, and she just couldn't stop talking about Leviticus, <laughs> and she was driving everybody crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something Nayara would do it. Uh. <laughs> so how do we do it responsibly? Well, you know, the, we've had the fear beaten into us so for three centuries now that we're going to be irresponsible if we're not careful. And that is... Um, that is the kind of fear that I think we've got to overcome. You know, you won't be considered scholarly if you, if you are too devotional or homiletical in your interpretation of the Old Testament. Well, let's go back to Paul in the synagogue uh, as he goes from place to place on his missionary journeys. We're told that on the first Sabbath day in New City, he goes into the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews that Jesus is the, the Christ. Now, if you imagine that debate, so you've got Paul is, is presenting his case for Jesus as Messiah. Some of the Jews in the synagogue agree with him, and, and, they, and, and then more of the God-fearers agree with him, and they become the nucleus of the new church in that town. Other Jews disagree with him, and they reject him. I think we need to think, what was at stake in that debate? How did that debate unfold, and what were the issues involved? And as we think about this, this is the foundational debate of the church. 
because either Jesus really is in the Old Testament, it was there all along, and all we're doing is discovering and, and recognizing the reality that's there, or we're reading Jesus in. And if we're reading Jesus into the Old Testament, then that means we're stealing the Jews' scriptures from them and appropriating them in an irresponsible way. That means that the claim of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ is wrong. Uh, it means the whole Christian church is premised on a mistake. So to me, the, the central issue is when we exegete the Old Testament Christologically, are we finding the true meaning of the text or are we reading something into the text? And that is, that is the central issue. That's really good. And I, I don't know, I think Carl and Amy uh, feel the same way I do about this. I, I hate to wrap up because I could do this all day. Dr. Carter, the conversation has been fascinating and, it, and it's already sending me back to reread certain portions of the book. Again, the book is entitled Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition by Craig Carter. And we just could not recommend it more highly. It is an excellent book. It is readable. It is a fascinating read. This is one of those biblical studies, uh, theology books that, that has you reading it in such a way that you have a hard time putting it down. And, and I just cannot recommend it more highly. And as was mentioned earlier, early in the book, Dr. Carter kind of teases us with uh, the thought that he's uh, going to be working on a, basically a companion book. Would that be a best way to describe it, Craig? It's the original project that I started. <laughs> <laughs> Carter's original project, which, which was going to be really devoted fully to, to classical theism. And we will look forward to it coming out. But, but until then, uh, please get a copy of Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. It is an outstanding book. And Dr. Craig Carter, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Mortification of Spin. Well, if you would like to uh, enter a drawing to get a free copy of Dr. Carter's excellent book, you can go over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and register to win a free copy. Also, while you're there, you might want to consider uh, making a financial donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Mortification of Spin is a listener-supported podcast, and we would love for you to consider contributing to the continuing work that we're doing here. Well, on behalf of Carl Truman and Amy Bird, this is Todd Pruitt. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I think we live in a world where the idea is that the only things that ever get properly done are those that are properly organized. It's kind of technocratic world, if you like. But in some ways, far more precious and far more significant are the times when members of the congregation just open their homes spontaneously to other people and invite them to their homes. And we, we can be in danger of, of losing that. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
This podcast was underwritten in part by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible in Comfort Print, inviting you to follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout Scripture. D.A. Carson leads a team of 65 scholars that have contributed to over 20,000 study notes and 28 articles on biblical theology, helping you connect the dots of Scripture so you can see each of its major themes take shape. Three of these articles are posted online at whatisbiblicaltheology.com. So I jump ship in Hong Kong, and I make my way over to Tibet. So I tell them I'm a pro-Jack, and who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama. So I'm on a first tee. What am I giving the driver? He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long. Into a 10,000-foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga, gunga, gunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice.